Hello and welcome back to Redeeming Disorder. Welcome to another episode. Welcome to another interview, a personable, relatable, vulnerable, authentic, heart-centered interview with a guest today who really held nothing back and was so forthright and vulnerable and open in sharing her mental health journey that I am grateful to be able to share it in turn to all of you. I am very much just the medium for a lot of down-to-earth sharing of a difficult but instructive journey with depression and anxiety of our guest today. Her name is Lauren Shug, and she was actually in the game of talking vulnerably about mental health long before I was. She beat me to the punch in 2016. She gave a TED Talk at Baldwin High School, and and I will link that in the show notes for you. And so that's from a younger Lauren, but a Lauren who already at that young age had a ton of maturity and introspection and ability to self-reflect on her journey and tell that journey, express that journey with the intention to help other people. That's what I hope to do anytime I talk about difficulties of mine. So... I love the opportunity to be a vehicle for yet a new audience for Lauren and her story in hopes that one of you listening right now can benefit from it. You might find it relatable. Whether or not you find it relatable, I think it's extremely instructive on relating to people who are struggling with numbness, difficulty facing their emotions, or even some of the darker and heavier topics that we get into like self-harm. So self-harm is a really serious topic and challenge and one that I never treat lightly in a conversation like this or in a preamble like this. So just be aware that that's something we talk about. I know it affects people who might have a propensity to self-harm in different ways. It might help or hurt to hear these things, but in the long run and in the big picture, I think it is helpful to have someone like Lauren talk about the feelings behind a lot of these struggles that a lot of people have, but few people talk about openly. So that open conversation is the first step to collective healing. And I think personal healing because, hey, we are all connected. So speaking of all these mutual connections, Lauren's TED Talk in 2016, Redeeming Disorder beginning in 2016, you might at some point now or in the past have wondered about Laura Bochansky. So this podcast has had an interesting nonlinear journey and a three-year or so hiatus from releasing episodes. And that's because in 2017, at the end of the year, the podcast as it began with Laura Bochansky and I co-hosting ended we decided to do different things on good terms we're still friends we've seen each other lots of times since then and keep in touch and are both on to pretty cool things in their own rights so obviously you know what i'm up to i'm filling your ear with it but laura is this year actually starting a new podcast and i was pretty stoked to hear about that just recently It's going to be called the Invisible Lions podcast, Invisible Lions, and it focuses on everyday people and their brave stories. So it sounds like it's a podcast that would have some intersection with Redeeming Disorder, but also we'll be able to explore a lot of interesting, cool territory. 
And if you are new to the podcast or you didn't even know it existed in 2016 and 2017, I would definitely recommend going back and checking out those earlier episodes. It's definitely a younger Ryman or Spencer, and uh, you'll notice a lot of differences. And I wish I were a bit of a better interviewer in some of the interviews. It's something that you get better at as you go along. But there's still so much, I think, to glean from those early conversations. And Laura brought so much to the table in having different interests like the Enneagram in season two that we got into with Ian Crone a little bit, but a lot with Suzanne Stabile. So it's nice to look back on what we created together in such a large part, thanks to Laura, and to both be really grateful to have done it, which we are. And by the way, if you are missing Laura, she has she has a really nice podcasting voice. I always thought that when we were co-hosting Redeeming Disorder that she was like a, the new Sarah Koenig and would just, you know, lull people into a really nice, calm, chill mood with <laughs> her calm voice. So if you missed that voice. In just some weeks, Laura's interview that we did in 2018, Catching Up and talking further about her journey and her personal story deeper than we did in the very first episode of Redeeming Disorder. So if you're looking forward to that, it won't be too much longer of a wait. And in the meantime, we've got a great interview today with Lauren Shug. So Lauren started struggling with some mental health challenges from a very early age. She talks about a lot of experiences in school, growing up and realizing that she had some unique challenges, contending not only with the heavy stuff, like self-harm from a young age, but also with the many different possible manifestations of depression and anxiety. So black and white thinking, worrying, extreme frugality, perfectionism. Lauren had a lot on her plate and kind of dovetailing with the conversation from the last two weeks and especially last week with Eric Cusin and the importance of mindfulness and awareness, awareness, I guess, of how we're doing in addressing issues, first needing to see that issues are there or what issues are there. And Lauren really hits on this need to see our challenges or our mental health issues clearly as a sort of first step to ultimately finding a healthy balance with whatever we're dealing with. Lauren also, at one point in a group therapy setting, practiced mindfulness, did mindfulness activities, not just sitting cross-legged on a cushion, like I've talked about, but some interesting novel applications of mindfulness, the way we relate to our minds and our thoughts. So I am so grateful for Lauren speaking directly and openly about the path she's had to travel as well as about some of her darkest moments, some of her difficulties. She was really willing in this conversation to step back into those emotionally with her heart, to speak from the heart, and to share those feelings in a way that can connect with someone who might have a similar struggle or might someday have a similar struggle or know someone who does and benefit from hearing that other story that's out there. Regardless of how many differences there are between two stories, I think what the stories ultimately are is the effects that they have, the impact that results from them being heard, and thus what you, the person whose ear I'm speaking very slowly <laughs> to, 
interprets what you take from this. So I hope you take constructive, helpful things from this conversation. Thank you once again so much to Lauren for sharing everything she did here. And without further ado, here is the conversation with Lauren Shug. I want to just have a big conversation, really. Yeah, that's not nothing too formal about how I'm doing interviews. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the most stressful part. Yeah, no, I mean, like, because honestly, I think the best stuff is just when you're talking naturally, right. like a conversation. With Survivor, it's it's really hard for them to get people to do that. Like, people are always conscious of how they're coming off and really wanting to like calculate their image, and that mm-hmm. just makes the, that makes everything feel a lot less natural. And I feel like you can tell when you're watching the show too. I like just watched. I, I'm weird. I'm rewatching like all the old ones that I don't remember from when I was little. Oh really? And I just watched the one with like Johnny Fairplay on it. Oh, Pearl Adams. Like, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a crazy one. It's Have like, you not seen that before? Or you had I had when I was like really young. Like I watched it when it was on. Oh so yeah. I don't remember. I was oh, like four. Yeah. 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 So I don't remember any of that. Wow, that's amazing. You watched it when you were. Yeah, because my parents always watched it, so I just I was like, yeah. I want to stay up too. So I'd sit out here and watch it with them. That's cute. <laughs> I wish I, I never really watched it as a kid. I had to just go back and watch it all. Did you? Uh, did you have like favorites from Pearl Island? That's such a good season. Yeah, They're really, it's a good cast. Rupert, yeah, he's just great. Yeah. Um, I don't know. He was. He just stands out. The bearded pirate. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's entertaining, and then yeah, just like everyone, really, whether they were like villains or or heroes or whatever, were pretty entertaining. I know. I, I didn't like Will though. I wasn't a big. Apparently they weren't either. <laughs> I, know, I know. More than Johnny though. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So yeah, no, thanks for being up for talking mental health um, no as well as Survivor. I know it's like a, a deeper, harder topic sometimes, but yeah. hopefully it can you know be good for some people to hear. Yeah. Um, so do you want to just introduce kind of how things came up for you and when you started having some challenges? I know you mentioned junior high. Like, Was there a first moment when you started noticing like, uh, I'm something up with your mood um well I knew for like a long time that I wasn't like like everyone else because like I said in elementary school even I would just cry about virtually nothing mm-hmm. and from what other people saw that was just me being like that weird girl so I would get teased and stuff like in elementary school but like in middle school is when that teasing kind of turns into bullying so I guess I kind of realized just in sixth grade, I, I started like minorly self-harming in like fifth grade and it's pretty early. That was like 10. Yeah. Mm. Like 10 or 11 or something because this one kid basically, he would always bully me and he basically just told me like, if you killed yourself, no one would really care. So I was like, okay. And I didn't really know like what to do with that. So it just kind of like, I don't. I don't know where my mind process was. I kind of, mm-hmm. from there, it was just kind of, I didn't really know. And I tried to stay like detached from my emotions and stuff. So, but I think I really realized that something was wrong, like in sixth grade, because that's when you do like the health class with like, where they talk about like depression and stuff. And I was like, Oh, maybe, maybe I have that. Maybe that's something that I need to see about, but I didn't really have like, a friend group or like a support group so I didn't do anything about it I guess and I don't know if it's because I didn't think that people cared or if I wanted to seem like everything was okay I think that was probably it I'm such like a perfectionist and 
me not being okay with something I didn't want to have to deal with. Mm. So as a perfectionist, what kinds of things would cause like a stress for you? Literally anything that's not going the way it's supposed to. Like I even remember specifically in first grade, like we were learning math, simple math, first grade math, but I could not understand it. It was hard for me. And not being able to comprehend something, I was like, why can't I do this? Like, I must be stupid if I can't do this. And so something as simple as, like, learning something in school and not understanding it right away would just bother me so to the point of tears, like, to the point where I would be, like, freaking out about not understanding how to do something that I seemed that everyone, it seemed like everyone else could do it, so why couldn't I do it? So, like, stuff like that would bother me from a young age. And then always, like, the money aspect of things would bother Mm. me. Before I even had, like, a real comprehension of what money was, I would freak out about things. Like, I remember specifically, like, telling my brother, like, I was like, we're going to go bankrupt. Like, we're just, if we keep sending money, we're just going to go bankrupt, RJ. We can't ask for new toys. We can't do this. What, like, we can't go out to eat. We're going to go bankrupt. And he's like, do you even know what that means? But I didn't. But, like, wow. it was just was something. That? that was pretty young. That was probably elementary school, too. I would just be like, I would get so freaked out about that stuff. And I don't even know where I heard about it. Like, it's not something my parents ever had to talk about because we weren't in financial difficulty. I don't, I wow. don't know. So like anything would just stress me out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was money a recurring thing or was that just one example? Um, that was like a pretty constant thing because even now I'm like really cautious about it, which is good, obviously, but right. I'm, I, I have to learn how to not be like obsessive over it. Right. Right. Yeah, not take it to an extreme. Like, I actually struggled with that, too. I was, as a kid, I would, I would like, contemplate, like, hmm, I have allowance money. I could buy chocolate, but do we have chocolate at home? Okay, I won't. <laughs> and, like, I was obsessed with saving money, yeah. too. Um, and definitely now I, I'm still good with money, but it can be taken to an extreme. Like, I'll put no tolls on Google Maps and go yeah. like 20 minutes out of my way to avoid a dollar fifty or, yeah. or 50 cents. And so sometimes, you know, it, it's not helpful. Yeah, and other times, like, it can be a good thing, so I guess... That's kind of how I have to look at it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm the best thrift shopper ever. <laughs> like, let's just put that out there. All my friends would come to me and be like, okay, we need to go get a dress. You're going to help me find the cheapest but cutest one. I'm like, I got you. Like, we're going. Get all those deals. So I guess it can be a good thing, but I had to learn how to get to a healthy point with it, I guess. <laughs> how did you learn to get to a healthy point with that? And then how did you feel like getting to a healthy point with all of this what brought that about? Um, I honestly didn't even really, like, learn any of that stuff until I started therapy. So in high school is kind of when I was able to deal with that. And I think it sounds so cliche, but the first step to dealing with it is admitting that there's something wrong. Like, that sounds so cliche, and that's what everyone always says. Like, the first step to admitting you have a problem or to getting recovery is admitting you have a problem. But that's, like, so true. Because the beginning of therapy, I, like, just went in and I would just shut down. Like, I wouldn't think anything. I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't be proactive about things. And after you finally learn, okay, there's a reason I'm here. There's stuff I can get out of this. And I just need to recognize what the problems are. So as soon as you recognize what the problems are, I think that's whenever you start being able to learn how to deal with them. So I guess I kind of just learned that things aren't 
as extreme as I make them. Mm -hmm. I seem like I kind of make everything like it's all or nothing black and white. And that's something we talk a lot about in therapies. You can't have that black or white thinking. You have to realize that there is a gray area and you have to be able to accept that gray area instead of saying all or nothing instead of yes or no. Yeah. Uh, so did you, when you started to realize like, wow, I think in a really black and white way, did you then, um, go to therapy immediately and did you ever get like a formal diagnosis or just group therapy? Yeah, I, we, what it, what happened was like my brother found out I was self-harming and mm. told my parents mm. and my parents like didn't know what to do because what do you do when your kid self-harms? Like, I don't know. They didn't know what to do. So the next day my mom like called the doctor and the doctor said just to go to like the pediatrician's office and they have that like not a guidance counselor, but like, I guess a therapist who's not really a therapist. I don't know what they are, but they have one of those at the, at the doctor's office. So I had to go there and spend hours like filling out sheets and talking about all the stuff I don't want to talk about. And that's whenever they decided like where from there they should send me. So from there I was diagnosed with both depression and anxiety. How did it feel to get that diagnosis? I feel like I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't want it to define me, but I feel like that's how a lot of people see it as a defining factor. And it's something you really don't understand until you're told that. Like, it's the same thing as having like a physical illness. When you're told it, you don't want to believe it and you don't want to think that that's what you're going to have to deal with and that's what people will associate with you. But still, there are people who will, I guess. So it it wasn't a good feeling and I didn't want to accept it, but mm -hmm. like I said, I had to learn how to accept it. Well, I think that's probably relevant to what you were just talking about, where you had realized that this, the root of this issue was like, you'd see things as black and white, all mm -hmm. or none. Exactly. And now you're in this situation where you have a diagnosis and you're worried about people thinking it defines you, which yeah. is again, you know, black or white, like you're either ill or you're normal. <laughs> and so Again, with the disorder itself, just the labeling of it, you have to deal with uh, that challenge. Yeah, and I feel like that's like a really big challenge, and the stigma around mental illness is something that everyone who, even from the littlest problems, has to deal with. I feel like just because people don't understand it, and it's I understand that it's really hard to to be able to understand and to think about things like that if you're not feeling them. Mm -hmm. What's the misunderstanding you think? <laughs> often is had like you were worried about people thinking it defines you mm -hmm. I mean I feel like a lot of people say that it's a choice that if you don't want to be depressed then just stop being sad and it's not that easy obviously like I didn't want to not want to get out of bed every day I didn't want to walk around feeling like I was completely worthless but I did and I couldn't help that and I think that's like the main thing that got me was people would say, if you're not happy, then just do something that makes you happy. But it's so much more than that. And you don't realize that until it's something you go through or someone close to you goes through. So I guess that's like the big thing that I think people misunderstand is that it's a choice. And another, I think, misunderstanding is that people use the word sadness and depression like interchangeably. And while they can be, there's also a bigger factor into what actual like clinical depression is than what being sad is. 
Same with like anxiety and being nervous. People say that they have anxiety because one thing makes them nervous, but they don't understand the walking around every day fearing that something's going to happen or having something minuscule happen and making it the big deal. They don't understand the constant nagging that it has. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those are like two misunderstandings. Not saying the people who are nervous and are anxious don't have anxiety, but the people who actually don't, I think it's hard to understand that there is a difference between the two. So people either don't get it because they think these things are a choice, you know, and they don't relate at all, or they experience anxiety day to day and think they relate, but don't realize that some people experience it much greater yeah. on the spectrum. Yes, exactly. Mm. Did you encounter that misunderstanding, like, early on? Yeah, I think I've encountered both of them, and definitely it's been a lot more that I notice it a lot more now because I'm kind of hyper aware of it, I guess. Like, even as early as, like, before I was even diagnosed, I realized that, like, I had, like, a stupid relationship, an eighth grade boyfriend, Mm -hmm. and I was, like, trying to confide in him, and I was like, yeah, I'm just really not happy, like, and I don't know why, and I don't know what to do, and his response, like, we broke up because his response was, if you're not happy, then maybe you shouldn't be with me, and I'm like, those two things don't really correlate, like, just because I'm not happy in general doesn't mean I'm not happy in a relationship, I'm like... Which, I mean, stupid 8th grade, obviously, they're not mm-hmm. going to understand. But, like, I feel like as early as that is when I realized, like, okay, people don't get that this is more than just, like, me being sad and unhappy. Like, it's something deeper than that. And I mean, I feel like I knew that before I was diagnosed, but, like, I didn't want to admit that. Why didn't you want to admit that? I didn't want to seem like I had something wrong. Mm-hmm. Same reason I didn't talk to my parents, like, when I was going through all these things. And I think that's what upset like, my mom knows she's like, you know you could have talked to me mm-hmm. that you were struggling, that you were being bullied. Like, you could have talked to me and you didn't. And I'm like, yeah, because as, like, being a perfectionist and who I am, I want to seem like I have everything put together all the time. Even though that's so unrealistic, but that's what I wanted. And I wanted that image of me. And if I admitted that something was wrong, all the work I'd done to me seemed like it would have just been gone because I'm not as put together as I wanted to be. Yeah, it sounds like even with mental disorder, you're framing it in these all or none, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, circumstances. Like you want to be a perfectionist, you don't want to say and it's something you're wrong. Right. With you. Does it have to be something's wrong with you, or could it just be you suffer from something that people suffer from to a greater extent than most people, and it's a challenge? But yeah, I think that that's how I kind of see it now. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm able to talk about it more and look back on it and I think that's another thing that's like a misunderstanding is I feel like people would always assume that if you have depression then you must have like a dysfunctional family or something traumatic had to happen to you as like a child or recently to make you feel that way like yeah something had to be the cause of it there could be eight different causes for what looks like the same disorder yeah and people don't understand that something didn't have to happen Because people would always say, like, Mm -hmm. you shouldn't be upset. Your parents are still married. Or you shouldn't be upset. You have a place to live. You shouldn't be upset. This and that and this and that. And there are people who don't have that. And I understand that there are people who don't have that. But that doesn't make my feelings any less valid. And that is something that's difficult to come to terms with is that you can't sit there and say, you're right. I shouldn't be upset because 
I'm not that person. You can't compare your feelings with someone else's feelings and your situations with someone else's situations. There are too many variables. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, there are, there's an infinite number of variables, of dimensions, of challenge, like family, genetics, environment, things we can't quite label in the way I just labeled those three things. To say that we have the formula for how it happens or how it should happen or how we should validate it, I think would be a mistake. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people don't see that, see it that way. I mean, maybe more so now, because I feel like even though I'm still pretty young, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I've seen a change with the way mental illness is looked at. Like, as many, like, not minuscule, because it's pretty big, but, like, as few years that's been, like, Mm -hmm. I've still seen it, so I feel like it's a lot better now people are understanding it more, Mm -hmm. but it's still obviously not at that point where everyone's going to be, like, understanding it. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're totally right that, like, we are talking about it a lot more. Things are better than they've ever been on the end of validating it. But I think also there's this, like, a challenge for us is we think that some people understand it and others don't. And really, in my opinion, like, the people who understand it the best still don't really understand it. Like, psychiatrists in modern science, like, we're getting better and better idea, but it's a huge mystery. So I think we have to be careful with with thinking like, oh, you know, the science has it all figured out. They have it categorized correctly. Just like you just said, someone could be from a dysfunctional family and have depression. Someone could have something genetic and have depression. Someone could go through a traumatic event and have depression. Someone could be going through depression. You don't really know why, but it doesn't mean that it's not valid that they're going through it. So how do you call it all one disease? Well, it is all a little bit different and we just haven't figured out exactly all the differences. I just feel like, I have so much hope for that in the future and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, like, participated in, like, some studies where we've, like, they've, like, looked at it. I don't know. I have, like, I got one of those, like, brain scans, and I had to oh, sit wow. in FMRI. the thing. Yeah. And I had to, like, play different games while wow. I was in there. Uh-huh. And then, so, they, like, did that for people who were diagnosed with depression, and then they did it for people who weren't diagnosed with anything. And it's to see how, like, the brain works differently. Was this, like, neurofeedback? Were you trying to... Was there, like, an objective in the game? Like, make the balloon float or something? There was... There were ones where you had to recognize different emotions. So, like, if someone looked happy, you'd have to, like, click left. And if they Uh, looked sad, you'd click right. Or then... Then there was one when you're outside of the machine. You're on this computer. And I don't even know what the point was, really. But you had to try to stop this, like... There was, like, a timer thing. And you have to try to stop it at a certain point. Mm Mm-hmm. But you didn't know where the point that you were trying to stop it was. Hmm. And if you were close to it, they would give you money and you'd get like coins put in the bank. And if you didn't stop close to it, you wouldn't get any. I still to this day don't know what they were doing with that. I don't know what that was. They would just like play these games that didn't really have. To me, it didn't seem like it had a purpose. But I mean, obviously, I guess it did. Yeah. I've heard of neurofeedback games where you try and make something happen, like stopping a clock or something. And basically, they're measuring your stress levels or your... (laughs) I don't know if they're measuring cortisol. I think they need a blood test for that. Whatever they're measuring, they're like, it is. you're able to do what you're supposed to do when you are less anxious. So you're like training your ability to like have some control. It's it's such an interesting field. And like the, the fact that you don't know what was going on, I'm sure they're still figuring out what was going yeah. on. Like hopefully that can really help us. But yeah, I think that's an interesting idea too. The idea of like agency in this whole thing. Because yeah. on one hand, you know, you made, I think the really valid point that, People will tell you, hey, snap out of it, and it's like, 
thought of that. You yeah. Know, I, I would if I could. Like, um, oh, great. I, I never thought of that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> let me just smile and it'll be fine. <laughs> right. So, you know, and I've been there and it's not, it's not so easy. Right. But there are also things you can do that help, right? Like that you can... If you exercise or if you eat well or if you maybe try meditating, like there are things that are shown to help. So like, how do you treat yourself with that? Like, do you just see it as I'm going to do what I can and whatever I was able to do is what I was able to do? Yeah, I feel like, well, because like we were saying, like everyone's different. So everyone finds the comfort in different things, I guess. And for me, when I was like at the peak of everything, that's like when you don't want to do anything at all, let alone get up and exercise. That'll make me feel great. Like, no, I don't even want to get out of bed. Right. So how I kind of dealt with things was not congratulate myself for the little things, but I would have to have small goals. I couldn't start with, oh, I don't want to get out of bed today. Let me go run a mile. Like, that's so unrealistic. And it's not as easy as having the determination to go do it. It's having to make that first step out of bed. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of how I had to look at it. Like, okay, I got out of bed today. Like, let me go for a walk tomorrow and then do that. And then Build like, up and baby yeah, steps. Yeah, and you have, you have to do baby steps. You're not, it's like anything. You're not going to, if you start training mm-hmm. to lift weights, you're not going to go straight to your goal. And I feel like that's what you have to do with this mental illness as well. You have to work yourself up to it you have to build that strength to be able to make it last yeah I, I think that's a really good point because I've been there and I've been even like recently I've been depressed and I don't want to do anything you know and I think if I were to say oh let me run for half an hour then maybe I'm even able to do it once but I'm not going to like sustain that so yeah the baby steps I think are really important and everyone's baby steps are different like one person might need to start here and one person might need to start here but I think that idea of doing something proactive but manageable and then building Mm -hmm. is a powerful one. And I think any step is a good first step. If you told me that I would be sitting here talking about this, never would have thought that. Right. Yeah, I don't want it to be overlooked. It's not an easy thing to do. Especially with someone you just met. (laughs) (laughs) Even with anything, though. Like, freshman year of high school, had to give a speech in front of a class of, like, what, 20 to 30 people? Literally couldn't do it. Got up, ran out of the room crying. Like, I looked at the kid next to me and was like, I can't do this. And I started crying, and I ran out of the room. And, uh, like, obviously, eventually I had to do it. But, like, Mm -hmm. getting up in front of 20 to 30 people was unimaginable to me, let alone getting up in front of people and talking about personal things. Like, that was nothing personal at all. It was a report on the brand Converse. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like, that's nothing compared to Mm -hmm. what I would do now like with the ted talk i gave there is i don't even know how many people in that audience but i have like two thousand views on youtube and thinking back to my ninth grade mindset that would have never ever even crossed my mind let alone became something that i did before that even i went into the health classrooms the psychology classes the sociology classes and i gave like a little informational thing about depression and about the warning signs. And that's what led to me giving my TED Talk. So I guess even for me talking about it, that was like one of my baby steps was presenting it to, it started out as like a class presentation. 
presented it to my class. Mm-hmm. Then the teacher was like, would you want to come into the other classes and present this to the other classes? And then, so that was my next step. And then I ended up doing all of the classes and then I gave my TED talk. And I feel like I want to do what I can with my experience to maybe ease the pain of someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you just talking about that kind of self-awareness and seeing when something might be wrong, saying the first step is acknowledging that something might be wrong. Probably is a really valuable message for a lot of people. It's hard because you're talking to so many people. Like you're talking to those people who need to hear acknowledge I'm depressed. And then you're talking to people who have lived with depression for years and have built an identity around depression. And you need to talk to them about how to take proactive steps and, it's a, it's a really daunting landscape. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and there are a lot of great things, like, going on about it. Like, I, whenever I can, I do the um, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They have those, like, suicide awareness walks, the out-of-the-darkness walks. So I've done a few of those just to, I don't know, because I just feel like it's really inspiring. Even if, you're, if you haven't suffered, mm-hmm. like, going there is a really powerful thing. Like... I took my boyfriend there. We, they had one up at State College. So mm-hmm. we went, and he had never had to like, deal with any of this stuff. And even he, like, was almost in tears. And he was like, this is just such a, like, a powerful experience. Because so many people just come together for the same thing. And it's, like, a beautiful thing, even though it's, like, a really tragic thing, I guess. Yeah. No, it, the, <laughs> the, uh, like, the support that can build around something tragic, though, can be really inspiring. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's a really great cause. Uh, to go off of you know your TED Talk and the story that you've shared and what you've been through, uh, I want to just take it back for a second to you know how it sounds like the, the depression and emotional difficulties started from a really young age, but then the start of the self-harm and you know when you were in like fifth grade or so, first I don't ask about what happened, I just want to ask about the feeling. Like what was the feeling of that? Of uh, like first time I like self-harmed mm-hmm. I guess or the feeling of wanting to of wanting to it's a mixture of things I feel like I feel like it's numbness you're numb and you want to feel pain but when you're in pain you don't want to feel anything so it's like you're never happy yeah exactly so I guess it's when you're numb it's mm-hmm. wanting to feel something mm-hmm. when you're in pain it's a way to release the pain mm-hmm. and you can always like when you're in that state of mind you can justify like, no matter what you, well, you think you can, you can't really, but like, at, in that moment, you can, it's like, and I think it also has something to do with being in control. I don't, I've never like really connected the dots with it. I don't really know if there is a way to, because it's like, you're numb, but you are in pain. You want to be in control, yet you're doing something that you know is like not healthy and isn't mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. and it's just like self-harming it was just something I was in control of and I guess it was like mm-hmm. if other people can cause me pain then I can do it too like mm-hmm. yeah you're taking control I mean I feel like I can see the connection there like yeah. you're taking control of how you feel you're numb because you can't deal with how you feel and when you do something that hijacks how you're feeling it suppresses everything you don't want to feel yeah and it, at first it seems like it's relief you self-harm and you feel better about things but then after going through therapy and stuff you get to that point where if you do it you feel even worse after and it's just like why did i do 
just do that. I don't get the same feelings that I did before. That's awful. I don't want to ever do that again. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. I, I really don't think anything can describe how you're feeling in that moment. Gets, I can't pretend to know. Yeah. It gets so desperate, you know, like, you'll see something and you'll be like, oh, like, that reminds me of self-harm. Like, I need to go do that. And it's like you hear about, like, people saying, oh, they use this to self-harm and they use that to self-harm. And it's so true. Like, anything can be that satisfaction for you if you try hard enough, I guess. Anything can be. So, like, you would even relate it to when people turn to substances or other things. Like, things, just anything that's changing the way you feel in a dramatic way. Yeah, that. You're so desperate to feel what you want to feel and to be in control that you rely on these other things, whether it be substances or like drugs or alcohol or yeah. whether it be like physically hurting yourself. Mm-hmm. It's no matter what, like whatever you can do to feel, I guess, in control and to feel something, to feel right. anything. I feel like that's what yeah. is going through your mind when you're in that state. So say you're, in that state, and I also want to ask this just because maybe someone's listening who is in the state or could be soon, and you even mentioned that just thinking about it can, through that narrow perspective, you feel like you want to do it. So if if you're in that state and if self-harm is going in the wrong direction, uh, what's going in the right direction? And I'm not looking for like even action steps or anything, just like emotionally, what's going in the right direction? You mean like if you're like tempted to do something and you... If you're tempted to do something, you're just feeling a lot of angst, a lot of dark stuff. Well, I mean, first, obviously, like, it's never worth it to do because you'll feel, frankly, pretty horrible after you do it. But if you're not even at that, like, mindset yet, I just feel like you have to think about what I would do. I think about the other people who are struggling, and I think about how... There are other people probably at the exact same time sitting in their room wanting to hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. And I have to think, I wouldn't want them to do it, so why am I going to do it? They might be hoping I don't do it, so... So try and get, like, a bigger perspective, like, yeah. be able to look at it from the outside. Yeah, like, sitting there, like, I feel like no one that I really knew ever said, like, if you're going through this, this is how you should deal with it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going through this, like... Do you need any help? Mm-hmm. I never had that. Mm-hmm. But what comforted me, I guess, was thinking there's someone else going through this and they don't want me to feel the way I feel the same way. I don't want them to feel the way they feel. Mm-hmm. So maybe if I don't do it this one time that I want to, maybe they won't either. And I mean, it sounds kind of silly because you don't know what someone else is going to do. But I feel like the hope for other people that I had made me feel more hopeful for myself. Yeah. And the key thing that I learned like through therapy and through just experience was go be around people because you're not going to do it in front of people. Mm -hmm. And obviously in this state, you don't feel like going around and being around people, but maybe that's what you should do. Yeah. You kind of have to force yourself out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Even if that makes you more anxious, it like for me, at least when I was sitting there wanting to self harm, that was more of like my depression taking over than my anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if going out somewhere triggered my anxiety more, Mm -hmm. at least it was taking away from 
My depression, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's distracting. It's, it's yeah. not like your ideal distraction. but Right, but yeah. still, being out in public and being uncomfortable like and nervous that way was better than sitting in my room wanting to self-harm. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of think about like what is worth the anxiety and what's what's worth it and what's not. Yeah. Yeah, I'm... One reason I really wanted to talk to you and get your perspective is because something I'm trying to sort out is it seems like there are kind of two ways you can go with these things that it seem, both seem to have the potential to help, like one being distraction, one being looking at your uh, happy box mm-hmm. or something and, and getting out of that state, just changing states, and the other being confronting how you feel because it seems like the real suffering the intense suffering is happening when you're not feeling what you're, when you're numb, when you're not feeling what's there. So, I mean, maybe I'm not looking for like a succinct answer. I'm just genuinely curious. Like, do you, how do you make sense of that? For, for me, Mm -hmm. when I was at the peak of those emotions and at the peak of my depression, I feel like Mm -hmm. distraction was what worked best for me personally, because thinking about it just made me feel worse. Maybe it was, like, too much. It yeah. was so intense that you couldn't go the other route. It was too much. Exactly. And even when I went, like, into therapy, they they would, like, like one-on-one therapy because I did that also. Right, right. They would say, like, if you don't want to talk about what you're feeling right now, we can just talk about something else. Mm. And I was like, well, why would I want to pay to sit here and talk to you about something, <laughs> about something stupid? Like, what was on TV last night? Like, why would I want to do that? But looking back, I understand that it's because it gets you away from that like terrible point that you're at, even mm. if it's just for a little bit of time. And I feel like at that point in my life, distraction was what was key for me. And I think that's what helped push me to recovery. But as I am, cause I, I think once you struggle, you're always kind of recovering. Mm. You're never going to be like mm-hmm. 100%. And now how I am able to like deal with things is kind of, looking at them face on and like even now I struggle like to talk about these things and it's like yeah I always want to cry when I'm talking about them (laughs) but I see that my feelings like they're worth something and even though they were negative crappy feelings they still have value and they still make me who I am so I feel like now at this point I'm able to look at things and I'm able to see like okay I'm feeling that way again but look how far you came. Like, you can push yourself through this, too. So, I mean, until I had those skills where I'm comfortable looking at things and talking about things, distraction was best for me. Yeah. I think you really just made something kind of click for me in understanding. I never, I never, I guess, realized, like, you've got to, like, pace yourself, maybe. Yeah. Like, sometimes the darkness is too intense to just take that approach. Yeah. And you have to, you have to like become okay, distract yourself to take that approach. And it's like, I feel like I've been dealing with the same thing with like the question of medication. Mm -hmm. Like maybe you need medication to get out of a dark place in order to be okay to where you can take that approach and like going at the root problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm on medication and Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like that definitely is one of the things that helped a lot because it made me able to, it like just 
stabled me out more. Not saying that, like, if I take the pill, I'm magically happy. Like, obviously, that's not the case. You still have to work towards it. But it made me, I feel like it made me stable enough that I was able to look at the problems more without wanting to just freak out. And like you were saying before, like, about looking at things with that mindset, and if you just let yourself be sad, it can make you feel better. Like, I totally agree with that. And then just adding on to what you were saying, like, if you're looking at darkness with more darkness, nothing's ever going to change. But if you're looking at the darkness with a lighter perspective, then obviously it'll be Yeah, yeah. And that's something that, like, first going through all this, if I had, if I was in a black, like, if I was in a black room and I brought myself into that room, it would just stay black. But as I learned more and grew more, if I see this black room and I'm in this black room, I can at least bring a little bit of light that I couldn't before. Yeah, I just got chills when you said <laughs> you look at it with lightness because that just really resonates with me. Yeah. That like that just really resonates. Like I've had moments before where I've been like, um, hold on, let me try and like reframe this. Like, not my depression's great, but like yeah. I. I'm good with this. Like, let, let's like mm-hmm. just experience this. Okay, I'm okay with it. I accept yeah. this, and it makes it so much better. Yeah, and it's just coming to the point where you learn to do that. That is really an uphill battle, I guess. Yeah, um, you mentioned therapy, so I guess let's follow up on that because it sounds like that was a really big tool for you. Yeah. Um, um you want to talk about just the the different techniques you you did, and like you mentioned, you know. I don't, I don't want to pay to just like talk about what was on TV. Like, did you feel like that was building comfort or doing something important? Yeah. It's not only is it like building comfort with your therapist or whoever you're talking to, but it's building comfort within yourself to be able to distract yourself from those feelings. And, and then going up at it was distraction. Like I didn't realize it at the time, but when I was in there talking about those things, I wasn't thinking about. Like, oh, I'm not going to feel like going to school tomorrow. Like, oh, I'm really upset about this one thing. Like, it made me not think about those things. And I don't know, I guess at the time you don't realize that even when you go there and talk about nothing, it's still something. And you're still getting something out of it. You just don't realize it in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've got a nice folder of... <laughs> yeah, this is just from one of my group therapies. Cool. <laughs> The first, like, because I went for three hours, three times a week yeah. for the intensive outpatient okay. therapy, and you, that was the group therapy, mm-hmm. and we spent the first half hour doing mindfulness, mm-hmm. which was anything from, like, reading something and you have to, like, repeat it back to playing that game that you play when you go on road trips where you're like, I went camping and I brought, and then you go around the alphabet. We would do that. And, or we would play like Jenga and stuff like that. So the first half hour would be like fun stuff because you don't think of those as being therapeutic tools, but now like when you're put in that frame of mind, you see that you're focusing on something Mm -hmm. and you're not thinking about the things you don't Mm -hmm. need to be thinking about. So when you're focused on that one thing, Mm -hmm. that teaches you how to take it outside of the room, the therapy room. Mm -hmm. And when you're focused on like those upsetting feelings, it teaches you how to focus on something else to get your mind away from those. So we always did like a mindfulness activity, which is what that was called. Then we do, um, it's cool that you view mindfulness as 
being, you know, potentially being so many things. Yeah. Because I, I agree, like, you don't want to limit it to just, like, sitting on a cushion, um, meditating. Like, you can get a lot of those qualities from a lot of different activities. Yeah, and then this is an emotion regulation thing. Mm-hmm. And it says letting go of emotional suffering, mindfulness of your current emotion. Mm-hmm. So even when you're being taught to be mindful and get yourself away from your emotions, they also teach you how to be mindful in accepting your emotions, I guess. Where, like, this has yeah. observe your emotion, experience your emotion, mm-hmm. remember you are not your emotion, and practice loving your emotion. Just reading yeah. this, I, like, thought back on it. They would make us think of, like, one specific thing that was really, like, bothering us, and you have to, like, just let it consume you for a few minutes, and then you have to realize that you're not your emotion. And I think that's the biggest thing you have to realize. You're not what you're labeled as, or you're not what your mind is telling you you mm-hmm. are. We always, and then we also had to do, like, every time we went, we had to do these, like, huge sheets, like, bubble sheets where you had to feel out, like, oh, I'm feeling this, I worry about this, I have dreams like this, and it really, you don't realize that it's time, but it really, in the long run, helps you sort out your emotions. Like, mm. I think back to those bubble sheets, and I hated them, but at the same time, like, I still got a lot, like, out of them, it helped me gauge my emotions, and, like, mm-hmm. looking back on all this stuff, like, what do you mean, gauge your emotions? Did it make you just more aware of them? Or? It made me aware of them, and as time went on, I could learn how to deal with them. So it's like you recognize them, and I can gauge how much of that emotion I'm feeling and how I can rectify it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's just so hard to explain. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and then you're looking at some cognitive behavioral yeah, therapy stuff. Yeah, lots of cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Like, what kinds of techniques would you do there? Would you? Um, so, well, we always did. We would do, like, we would draw, like, a triangle because we had, like, a board. Mm-hmm. So you would draw a triangle on the board, and everyone would do it because there were, like, six or so people in the group, and you would think about, like, what's bothering you. So you have this triangle, and you have, like, behaviors, thoughts, and emotions, mm-hmm. and you would talk about how your emotion would lead to lead to the behavior which would lead or the thought would lead to the emotion which would lead to the behavior mm-hmm. and how you can stop that triangle from being completed, I guess. By just breaking up one yeah. one of its points. Whether mm-hmm. it's you know, like changing the behavior could then have a ripple effect to the other two. Yeah. Each part affects your other behavior. And or your the other. And it's like mm-hmm. so we would do like there's this, it's like the emotional spiral. Mm. And so we would like fill them out like ourselves. Like we have this, there's yeah. the downward spiral. And then we learned about the upward spiral. So, so you, you would write in what the different points so, like, spiral were. So like there's mm. me, I wrote down, I guess I was being talked about. And then I would like learn yeah. how it like goes down to thinking about self-harm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to, I don't know if we did the upward spiral, but then we learned that you have to try to you're just like, it out. Like, you're like you mapping it. out the, the pattern and yeah. the order of thoughts that you keep seeing. So it's not just happening unconsciously. You can then like yes, see exactly. it happening. Exactly. So that's a lot of what we did. We did a lot of like you had to visualize it and making it visual and making it tangible yeah. was yeah. a lot more than just thinking it and talking about it. It's being something that you can hold on to and see in a way that you're not seeing when you're just thinking about it. 
And how did that translate when you, when it is something tangible mm-hmm. and when it's something you can see, how did that change the way it would manifest in your life? I just think seeing it for me was a lot more powerful because other people could see it too. Whereas in my mind, it was just me. Mm. And that's what would just kill me was everything was just me and it was me just alone. But when you can see it, other people can see it and it kind of takes the burden off of you, I guess. Makes it feel more, was it like a validation thing you think or Mm. something else? I don't know. It's just maybe not validation, but knowing I'm not alone, I guess was more of it for me Mm -hmm. because I had always felt like, Oh, this is weird. Like not a lot of people go through this and I'm like weird. Like, Oh, no one understands this. And when you put it on paper and you see that other people have their own baggage and their own thoughts that they have to deal with. Yeah. And then when other people see your thoughts, honestly, it takes a huge burden off of you Mm -hmm. because you carry that around and it's like you holding a bunch of weights and there are other people around you and you're just still holding all the weights. You have to learn to let other people hold them sometimes. And, and it sounds like you realize other people are holding theirs. So yeah. You're not the only one do, dealing with this. Yeah, and I felt like just me as a person, I would always want to help everyone else. So it's like not only am I holding my own weights, I'm trying to take other people's. Mm-hmm. And I can't do that if I can't even hold my own. How am I supposed to hold someone else's? So it's like I would let my own problems fall into the back burner while I dealt with other people's problems that I didn't really need to deal with, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I would put aside my own well-being for someone else's. And I realized you can't always do that as much as you want to and as much as you want to help everyone else. Sometimes you're just not at the mental state to do that and you have to accept that you can't always be the knight in shining armor. You sometimes have to be the one who needs a little bit of assistance. Yeah, you have to be okay with having that vulnerability and it goes back to like the um the labeling and the fear of misinterpretation or people like thinking you're weak or thinking thinking something defines you yeah i feel like i had to come to my own point where i had to learn that too Mm -hmm. where i couldn't just say i don't want this to define me to other people Mm -hmm. because i had to make it not define me myself before i could be something more than that i guess you feel like you have to kind of like, there are things you have to deal with internally before you can deal with it externally. Like you mentioned needing to help yourself before you can yeah. really be effective at helping others. It sounds like that's kind of like a theme. Like yeah. I feel like you kind of have to, whether that's the way you want to go about it or not, mm-hmm. you end up kind of having to do it anyway. Definitely. There were times when I like wanted to be able to help other people, like whether it be, people I was in therapy with. And I think something that really made that stand out to me was in group therapy, you're not really supposed to talk to the people outside of therapy. And I was like, well, that's stupid. You're making me sit here with them for nine hours a week and I'm not allowed to talk to them. But then you realize that if you do talk to them and they have a problem, it just makes you that much worse. So even though you want to help other people in that instance, it's not good for you and you can't. And that might make you te- take steps backwards that you wouldn't take otherwise. So. Mm-hmm. And you have kind of stayed in touch with some of the people, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which has been, I, you mentioned on our Skype call, it was a really valuable resource. Yeah. And especially like after you're more co- recovered and more like, I don't want to say stable, but like more stable with yourself, I guess. You 
it helps to talk to those people because they went through the same things you did. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of times it's people you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. Like, I went to therapy, I went to a group therapy with some popular cheerleader from my high school. And I was like, there's no way she's here because I'm here and I'm the complete opposite of her. But now we still, like, talk occasionally and, like, she's someone who I know if I need to talk to someone who has experience with not only the feelings I have, but the coping mechanisms I learned, like, mm-hmm. then I have her to talk to. Yeah. And it's, like, it's honestly such, like, a good thing to have someone because I could talk to other people about it. Yeah, but they don't understand because they weren't there. And she was there. Whether she wanted to be or not, she was. And she learned the same tools I did. And mm-hmm. when I just need someone to reflect on those with, mm-hmm. then I can talk to her about it and know that she understands exactly what I'm talking about. Not that her and I went through the same experience, but we went through the same treatment. Mm-hmm. And if you're not going through the same treatment as someone, I don't think you can fully understand yeah. their way of getting to where they are. Yeah. I talked to a guy about like the the trickiness with people like, trying to understand when they don't and like faking empathy or 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 trying to like they're so far from relating that they just try and like throw something out there and it doesn't really work but they feel like they have to try and like sometimes that's not always helpful i guess it's like sometimes like even now like i want to talk about how i'm feeling to my friends at school and the one girl she thinks she understands but like you know you can tell by the things that she says that she like doesn't mm-hmm. and it's just like i'll be like oh i'm feeling this way today and then she'll just be like yeah well you know one time this happened to me and i'm like that has nothing to do with what i'm feeling right now so don't try yeah. to like make it like it like sucks because i'm like i know you're trying so hard to like relate mm-hmm. to me and to understand what i'm going through but like you can't mm-hmm. and it's like I understand that you want that, but at the same time, it's just so frustrating because it's yeah. like, you don't get it. And I understand that you want to be able to talk to me about it, but I just... I so be, be okay with not having your own anecdote yeah. to throw out there and being able to just listen, even if you, you don't exactly relate. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What was shocking about the fact that that girl was in there that, who was, you know, a popular cheerleader? I feel like I kind of related it to, like, TV shows or movies. You see the popular happy girl and... She's the cheerleader with all the friends and blah, blah, blah. And that's how I saw it. And I was like, oh, and she's like, fine. She doesn't know, like, the struggles that I have. Like, she doesn't understand people not liking her. She doesn't understand, like, sitting alone at lunch. She doesn't understand that stuff because she has those people surrounding her. What I didn't realize was how superficial all of that is. And I think that's something that a lot of times, like, pop culture didn't show me was the fact that if it's not real, then it's it's just as good as not having anyone. So I guess, like, from how I saw her versus how she saw herself was polar opposites. And that's what I didn't realize I would see in her was someone who actually was hurting and felt left out, even though she had everything that, like, I felt like you were supposed to have. She looked like she had it all. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's really important, like... I need to be on Do Not Disturb. <laughs> Sorry. Because I've heard other people echo that. Like, I, the guy I'm actually going to be talking to next after you uh, was said, like, he saw a Facebook post from a guy who talked about being depressed and suicidal and all this stuff. And he was, he had been, like, captain of the football team yeah. and prom king. And it's just, like, you never know what's going on right. behind closed doors. Because it's, like, 
all those things that like you're are supposed to happen, like that all American dream of star football player dating the head cheerleader, like all that stuff. It doesn't mean anything when you get past the exterior of it. That doesn't mean anything. And I feel like that's what you don't realize because not that I was like wallowing in self pity, but like at the same time I was just like, she's there's no way she's gonna understand what I'm feeling and the way I the way I see the world versus how she sees it. It's gonna be completely different. But it's really not as different as you would think from the outside. Like we look completely different and we do completely different things, but on the inside we're both feeling the same not so good feelings. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks for also just, I feel like you really talked from the heart. You talked from the head too, but <laughs> I feel like following, I'm not like leading from the heart is important when you're talking about stuff like this. It's really, I think you can help some people by being vulnerable like you've been. So That's thank you. like how I see it too. Is like, cause like I said it in my TED talk, I was like, if I have to relive everything by talking about it and by telling how I feel, if I have to relive all that, but it still helps one person, then I'm fine with it, you know? Like, to me, that's worth it. Is if I just sat here, like, spewing facts out and, like, acting like it didn't make me who I am, and that, that stuff doesn't still, like, sting a little bit, I'd be lying. I don't, I just, like, I feel like people need to see that it's okay to accept that that was who you were. Or, like, that was a part of you, not who you were. But, like, it's okay to accept that, but it's okay to still, still like, struggle when talking about it. Because it is, it still hurts. It's never going to know. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And if you're okay with it, just put the brakes on whatever you want. But no, if you're okay I'm with good. it, I'd love to just, I don't want to rehash things from your TED Talk, but you're going through this in this dark place and you had started a self-harm and you talked about the feelings of that after you did it for the first time how did it unfold from there how did you keep going and then ultimately your brother um helped things but can you just take me through that yeah so i guess like i did it once and it just made me feel better in some way i can't really explain how i don't think i even really know how because i don't really fully understand it either but I think you might understand more than you think though like yeah. it I thought it was really cogent it made sense what you said before control yeah. wanting to feel feeling dumb yeah and it's just like I felt something good out of me I don't I can't pinpoint what it was or what it was that made me feel that way but I felt like I got something positive out of it which obviously like now is not really but and so every time that like something would happen that's how i would deal with it it would make me feel better it was like a comfort thing it's like got to the point like it would i don't know, like it's when it started it was just like little like scratches and stuff and then it got to be like more intense and more what you think about when you think about self-harming and that's like what i don't know um it just got more intense as my emotions got more intense, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I would rely on that for, like I said, comfort, control, wanting to feel something when I didn't feel like I could. 
And it kind of just became like, not really like a habit, but it came, it was how I dealt with it. Just any time that something didn't go right for me. You were a perfectionist, yeah. so probably a lot of things might have spurred some of that stress. Yeah, so it's just like anything, anytime something wasn't picture perfect, that's kind of how I would deal with it. And then it got to the point where it's just like, you kind of want to do because you like the feeling you get after. Just like how people say, like, with drugs, you do it and you feel great. It's kind of how it was. So it was almost, it was like a real addiction, even yeah. if it wasn't a substance. Right. And I feel like people at school knew about it, but no one really said anything because they didn't think it was as real as it is. Wow, people knew you what you were doing. Did you tell them, or did they just you could tell? Both. It just depended. Wow. Yeah, and because I don't think they thought it was real. I don't know if they didn't think that it was as serious as I was making it out to be, or if they thought I was like, being dramatic, or if they thought like, oh, then if I just tell her like that I'm here for her, she won't do it. And it kind of just became habit and just continued to do it all the way up until my brother noticed and, um I know like the exact moment when he noticed I really like I never really thought about that until recently we, I would always have like I would always like write or draw or something to like try to persuade myself not to do it mm-hmm. and I remember we were at my grandma's house and my parents were away for the weekend and we were there and I like handed him something or I did something and I like and he like saw and I was and I like no and I like pulled away real quick and he was like wait what's your arm six set writing on it and I was like oh it just says this and he was like can I see it and I'm like nope no you cannot and he like didn't push it anymore and then that night, the night before I started my freshman year of high school, my mom came in my room and she had an excuse too. She's like, oh, that hair bit, that looks tight on your wrist. Like, can I, can I like see it? And I was like, mm-mm. I was like, no way. And I like shoved my arm under the pillow and I laid down on it. And we were, she was literally like on top of me trying to get this, skin my arm off from under there so she could see it. And eventually she did. And we both just did. And that's like, I feel like even though I didn't realize how serious it was, until someone else did too, I guess. Until you had to look at it with her. (laughs) I feel like this whole time, my emotions in because I didn't want to hurt the people around me and I didn't want them to see me differently and I didn't need to and they were here for me and they supported me and they didn't understand but they tried but that's the best reaction I could have gotten even though I was angry 
and I didn't want to go to therapy, and I didn't want to do all these things. Even though that the last thing I wanted to do was go to therapy and talk about how I was feeling and to talk about why and when and all the painful things that I had buried for so long. Mm -hmm. But that's what I needed to do. And they recognized that and they were able to help me get to that point where I could talk about things. Yeah. And I think that's what was the most important thing was the people that I, from then on, surrounded myself with. I'm so happy for you that you had those people. So it's just like, like this outbound thing, and it was really difficult. Like you can't just stop because every time you get that feeling, you just want to do it again. And it takes a long time to not give in to those feelings. And but at that point, I knew I wasn't just doing it. Like I wasn't trying to stop just for myself. I was trying to stop for other people. And that's, I think, what was most important to me. It was because the whole thing, I didn't want to talk about these things because I didn't want to disappoint people. And then, come later, I did something like that was even worse than just saying, hey, like, I'm sad today. Like, this person did this. And mm -hmm. All of that was a lot worse. The more you didn't share, it's like this thing you weren't sharing grew and grew. Yeah. And now all of it's shared and, <laughs> and other stuff on top of it. So mm -hmm. it just, you don't realize at the time like how serious everything is. And you don't really realize the damage that you're doing by trying to cover up how you're feeling. You don't realize that until yeah something forces you to realize it. Yeah. Like the, you talked about looking at the darkness with light, the light wasn't yeah. just you, it was people around yeah. you and it could only really grow like it did when that light wasn't shining on it and when you didn't have the support and weren't looking at it yourself i mean that's that's amazing though that you're now like doing this talking yeah. about this openly light shining on it from all angles from people you don't know as well that's really an amazing change because i mean i just feel like the reason it's so like important for me to be like proactive about things is because I didn't I felt like I didn't have that until till they realized that I was self-harming I didn't feel like anyone could understand and still I don't know a lot of people who have and I don't have like a connection with people who have mm -hmm. and I feel like a lot of people don't just come out and say, like, oh, I did that. Oh, I struggled with that, too. And I, since I never really saw anyone coming out and saying that and being proactive about their situation, I didn't want to be, like, the only person mm -hmm. that was dealing with that. But now, looking back, that's the reason that I'm so open about things mm -hmm. is because if I had that, Maybe I wouldn't have struggled for as long as I did. So if I can help someone stop struggling and stop feeling the way that I used to feel, then that's what's important to me. If someone wants to reach out to you, whether it's to, to really get in touch or just to thank you for this, because yeah. I think someone out there listening to this actually probably will. Where, I mean, 
should they go to you on some kind of social media or? Yeah, um, you can contact me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's L A U R underscore R A W R R, or just you can type in Lauren Shaw and you'll find it too. Yeah, slide in those DMs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think yeah, uh, DMs aside, you definitely, this will help people. Yeah, and, I hope uh, so. Just the, the themes we touched on, I'm excited to write about you, yeah, too. Good. Um, so thank you. No, thank you. Good. Good stuff. Cool. <laughs> okay, so that is it for the conversation with Lauren Shug. Once again, I've got so much gratitude for Lauren going as deep as she went and being as down to earth and as real and as vulnerable as she was. I know it's beneficial for at least one of you out there, for someone hearing this. And even if you're not connecting on that deep of a level, regardless of what you're dealing with or what your path, what your journey, what your struggles are, hearing someone be that open and that brave with their pain is just opening and helpful for anyone who delves into the story and who listens. So thank you for listening. If you're listening and you're also feeling very grateful for Lauren and wanting to reach out to her, she did share her Instagram. And you could also keep in mind it's her birthday in a couple weeks. In uh, two Thursdays from now, we'll be wishing her a happy birthday. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Lauren. Thank you to you for listening. And to any of you listening who were moved by this or affected by this, I know this was a heavy discussion about some difficult things, so definitely take care of yourself. If the conversation stirred anything up, just see that, be open about it with yourself, with others even, if it's helpful, if you need to talk to someone. And regardless, I hope that sharing in the openness that this podcast broadcasts and shares and that Lauren was able to bring to the table today. I hope it's beneficial. And I'll just leave you with one of my favorite things that Lauren shared, which was her approach to feeling that connection when it's so hard to, when you feel isolated, when you feel in your own mind or retreated or secluded or disconnected from people, feeling as if you're the only one feeling this way, even though you know that's not the truth. Hearing a conversation like this can help, but even more than that, what Lauren shared, I think, really can help, which is imagining the many other people who are in a similar boat, who are struggling out there, knowing they're out there and knowing that just as you wish for their well-being, just as you would want them to be happy, they, by and large, wish the same for you. Even if we may be in a very twisted, crazy time, a very disconnected era, a very disconnected milieu, and the trends don't look great. It doesn't seem like technology is helping things. Things might even get worse before they get better. But even if, based on circumstances, we find ourselves feeling disconnected, feeling isolated, we can know that others are out there wishing you happiness, supporting you, sharing their burdens and their struggles, and... I think to talk about mental illness and mental health at this point, given the state of the world, you have to talk about our collective mental health, our collective psychology. And ultimately, I think that openness is going to be necessary for our collective healing. 
So thanks for listening. Thanks for making it possible. Thanks for making it fulfilling. And I hope you have a fulfilling next week, a great next week. I will talk to you once again on Thursday, the 19th. And until then, I'm wishing you all the best.